Hi everyone, welcome to the Inner Game of Change podcast, where we focus on exploring the multi-layers of managing organizational change effectively. Our guests cover a diverse number of critical topics to enable change adoption, including communication, leadership, training, change practice, process design, change capability, and much more. My name is Ali Jamal. Today, I'm joined by Paul Gibbons to discuss his recently published book, Impact, Volume 2 of the Leading Change in the Digital Age series. A thought leader, prolific author, and a passionate speaker in the field of leading change, Paul shares the current trends, the emerging tools, as well as the mindsets required to define the ever more evolving future of change management practice. In this podcast, And for the first time, Paul will share his upcoming venture to reshape the future of change management. I'm grateful to have Paul speaking to us today. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining the Inner Game of Change podcast. It's a great, great pleasure, Ali. Good to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, Paul, today I would like to talk a lot about uh, your book, your latest book called Impact, 21st Century Change Management, Behavioral Science, T- Digital Transformation, and Future of Work. The book is really loaded with a lot of topics. Was that the intention? And are they all related? Uh, well, they, they are all related, but I do want to just say I've, I've written a book since called The Spirituality of Work and Leadership, Yes, Finding Meaning, Joy, and Purpose in What You Do. Uh, so I'm not going to talk about that book. And I have another book coming out soon called The Myths of Change. Well, I look forward to, separate. to that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so I'm, I am I try and write one a year. Uh, and I wrote, um, I wrote Impact in 2019. So it's a sequel to a book I wrote called The Science of Organizational Change. Uh, and um, it tried to put some of the science of organizational change into context, uh, into the context of digital transformation. Digital transformation, I think, is a context. It's a backdrop for the book. It's the thing that in 2019, before the pandemic, executives were talking about most, is how do we affect a digital transformation in our business? So that's why that title. Uh, The future of the work continues to be a context for my book. It's something that I'm Fascinating, interested in because governments and businesses don't seem to me to be up to the challenge uh, of what's going to happen to workplaces in the next decade. Uh, particularly, we have to worry about when uh, robotics and outsourcing hit the United States manufacturing business in the 1990s. It was a very good thing for the profitability of companies mm. to be able to outsource to lower-income countries. It was a huge part of the consulting business that I was in at the time. And uh, robotics have obviously reduced the human cost of manufacturing by great ways. So, um, But we ignore the human costs at great peril. Uh, These are people with lives and livelihoods and families, and um, uh, governments and businesses didn't really think enough through the human consequences. So the disruption coming from artificial intelligence may be as as extreme as robotics was in the 1990s. The robotics revolution is still with us. Mm. It's not that we've 
done all we can do there. Uh, but that affected only manufacturing workers. Uh, the artificial intelligence revolution will affect service industry workers, legal assistants, people who are knowledge workers will have part of their work taken over by intelligent systems. And we really need to think through as a world and as business leaders, the effect of those. So digital transformation and the future of work were the context into which I wrote a book, which is principally on change management. Fantastic. And um, you talked about the 90s, which is a segue. You started practicing, I think, the change in uh, communication work in early 90s. Um, have you noticed this shift uh, since then? Um, because one of the things that I took away from your book is that the, the older practices are no longer you know, fit to take us to the future. Yeah, I mean, change management hasn't changed enough since the 1990s. The number one book on change management, if you look on uh, Amazon, is still leading change by John Connor. Yes. Uh, my book's kind of up there somewhere. Uh, the Probably the number one change management specialist firm is ProSci. Yes. Who developed what they did in the 1990s. And it would be great to say that John Connor and ProSci have been really actively updating their work and to my to as far as i can tell uh not not enough um they are uh still behind so you might ask me the question well how are they behind uh one of the ways is uh they haven't really thought enough about uh the effect of digital technologies on communication and what digital digital technologies make possible we'll bracket that for a moment they haven't really thought about behavioral science and what behavioral science makes possible in the arena of change. Uh, they haven't, they're still based in older models of the way that uh, organizations work, uh, which was a very 90s paradigm. It's a paradigm that's hundreds of years old, very top down, uh, the paradigm of planned change rather than emergent change. So there's lots of ways in which, you know, I think we can do a better job. And nobody, I don't think yet, has got a really terrific comprehensive template for how we talked a little bit about the future of work, but what's the future of change that's going to have to accompany the future of work? And I say there's nothing, if you're dealing with a millennial audience, for example, mm -hmm. if you're using old school, you know, 1990s analog change management methodologies uh, in, for a digital transformation, you look like an idiot, right? Yes. I mean, uh, you know, we need to, uh, as change practitioners, you know, do our very best to keep up with um, what's happening in the future of change, to lead the future of change, to lead change management into this now, the third decade of the second millennium, if you will. So... That's my that's my shtick. Yes, and um, and I think you talked also about I think you just touched on it on the uh, the way we communicate the change, we the way we manage it, the training aspect of change um, in, in your book. Yeah, I mean, so I'm going to tell you something that I have not told anyone else in the world right now. I'm listening. Uh, it, as I've just joined uh, forces uh, with a very big consulting firm called uh, Deloitte, uh, not as an employee, because I'm too old to be hired as an employee, but as an advisor to them, um, you know, a rather substantial involvement, probably be three quarters of my time. And my involvement with them is going to be around what's the future of change management that we need to craft. Now, what's interesting about these guys is they've done 
a tremendous amount of work. And I think they've done some terrific investment in future change management. However, first of all, it's underpublicized. So nobody knows about it except their clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and secondly, um, so they have a, a problem in the sense of having their reputation catch up with their, if you will, their method development. But also they're really fascinated by this idea of how we bring more science into the area of change management, change leadership. So this is the first this is known in the in the world uh, that I have um, developed a partnership. I'm on their team and, and and I like what I see. And one of the things, so you mentioned training uh, and, and uh, as workplaces become more technological, a lot of the behavioral change that we will need to see in workplaces is technology-oriented behaviors. How well do people use the system, what's called adoption? And one trend in change that your listeners will want to pay attention to is there's something called a digital adoption platform, EAP. And it's being marketed falsely as the answer to how you get change to happen. Now, having said that, it does some really good things. So uh, one platform that I'm becoming familiar with is called WalkMe, which sits on top of your big computer system implementation, be that SAP or Workday or uh, Salesforce or whatever system you want your employees to use, and it helps guide them through the learning process. And in that regard, it's impressive, uh, but it's not by any means a replacement for change management. It augments change management. It solves one of the problems of change management is upskilling your workforce so that they can perform, they have the skills to perform what they're being asked to do in the new changed world. That's a change management challenge. Mm. Traditionally done through analog methods, right? Traditionally done through a training course. But now we're increasingly able to do that virtually. Um, And the challenge is to make those virtual experiences rich and rewarding and challenging and inspiring and all of that good stuff um, in the way a trainer could do in a live environment. That's what we do. (laughs) Uh, We want to be able to recapture some of that in the virtual environment. Now, virtual has a lot of advantages. They can be just in time. You can watch a training course while you're um, on an airplane. It's good. You can rewind. It's good. You can listen to something again. That's good. You can track people's progress. That's good. The digital adoption platform monitors people's behavior and how they're doing with the system and are they making mistakes and guides them. That's all good stuff. So there are advantages to virtual, uh, but we also want to take in mind of the fact that we're dealing with human beings and we are not, you know, designed as virtual per- virtual people despite 2020 and the pandemic and mm. you know the way we've had to adapt our working lives. Um, so we need to can retain some of the magic of in-person training, some of the human connection, and build that into some of the more digitally oriented training solutions. So uh, Deloitte are a long ways in their thinking about how they help their clients um, learn and adapt and adopt technology. Um, and I think that's one of the ways that change management will be changing in the future is we don't want to lose the human side of change because for dealing with human beings. Uh, But we also want to make use of technology in such a way as supports human beings being the best they can in the workforce, the workplace. So I come from a humanist perspective. Mm. Like technology for me is only good insofar as it makes human lives better. 
you know that's that that's it you know otherwise it's a waste it's a waste you know we need to orient the technology that we use in businesses so that they make workplaces great for human beings yes. so that human beings can do more of what human beings do well together um so technology isn't from my point of view an end in its own right it's not a valuable end by itself it's only a valuable end if it makes the world better for human beings and so, is that anyway that's a bit that was a bit long-winded i'm sorry about that sir not not at all not at all i'm i'm enjoying listening to this because um um well there's there's always you know this mentality that technology is not the answer um, and therefore we need to focus only on a face-to-face and all of those things uh, because a human is a human. Um, but I agree completely with you. Technology is an enhancer and gives us data um, to perhaps modify the way we want to um, help our people grow and thrive. And as you said, at the end of the day, each leader comes to work to help their people succeed. And uh, that success is a bit challenging sometimes as well. Yes, and yeah, I think we're I think we're on the same page. Yes, and um, what I find about training, which is always the, the the secret of a good, you know, well thought through change management practice, is that that knowledge transfer, that what we call training uh, transfer from knowledge to ability. What what are your views on that? Well, training transfer is a really big problem for traditional training, right? Um, if you studied the literature, the academic literature on training transfer, some of the attempts that people have made to measure how much of the content of a course manifests itself in changed behaviors in the workplace and therefore changed results for the business. The numbers are really are really terrible. There was a, a statement in 1981, which is often quoted, which wasn't entirely based on research. So I want to caution is that the 70% please? Yeah, no, 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 no. This is worse. This is much worse than 70%. <laughs> this is a guy called Jorgensen who was uh, an expert. Jorgensen, 1981. If, if people put that in Google, they'll come up with what I'm about to say. He said only 10% of training transfers to the work, to the work back to the workplace. Wow, okay. That's, hor- that's horrifying, right? That's horrifying. That's a horrifying number. So is it as bad as that? And I've talked to friends in the training business, and I've said, you know, hey, listen, we do a three-day course for people managing conflict, whatever it might be, time management. I've developed, delivered courses in, oh, my God, hundreds of different topics, right? And so trainer to trainer, we're having a beer, we're talking about, we say, how much does your best student in the class transfer back to work? Take it, call it time management, call it conflict management. Mm. And when we're honest with one another, we think the very best student, the keenest learner, the hungriest learner, the person who's most dedicated to trying to apply what they've learned, maybe half. (laughs) The rest they'll forget or they'll try and use it and it'll be too difficult. It won't be received by the organizational context where they try and apply it. Uh, And so for very reasons, these new skills can be rejected, forgotten, misapplied. You know, I, I used to work with um, one of the things, here's an example, right? Uh, time management. So one of the things you would do in a time, a time management course is you would say to people, you want to bracket when you do email. You don't want to have email open on your desktop constantly pinging you throughout the day. H- how do you do any knowledge work? How can you keep your brain focused on doing the great things that human brains can do? If this goddamn thing is pinging at you and you're immediately like a monkey, 
responding to all these emails. So there's a problem. Everybody faces that problem, right? Uh, so every, we all face that problem, right? And, and so, you know, best practice is you turn off all notifications. And what you do is you say between 8.30 and 11 o'clock in the morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do the knowledge work that I need to do. Uh, my brain is charged up on coffee. And if I have to do some writing or some thinking or some producing or some connecting with human beings, I'm going to do that. And then when that's done, I'm going to bracket an hour for doing emails. And I'm going to do emails for an hour. And I'm going to switch the goddamn thing off again. Right? That's best practice, right? Mm. Now, who actually does that, right? And, you know, people have gone, yeah, that would be a better way to work. But then if the culture of the workplace where you go back, you've been on this time management course, and you listen to some, you know, arsehole called Paul Gibbons, and he's persuaded you that this is a good way to run your life so that email isn't pinging you all the time, email over here, messenger over here, Slack over here, you know, all of these different digital platforms surrounding you with noise and distraction, right? That's the working life. You want to turn all that off, right? So that you can create and think and connect with people. Like before I talk to you, I turn my phone off. I turn notifications off because we don't want to be interrupted. So they go back to the workforce and the workforce is like, yeah, my boss, when he sends me an email, he wants to reply within three minutes. And if the guy down the hall sends me an email, if I haven't answered him in 10 minutes, he walks down the hall and says, why haven't you answered my email? So if the culture of the firm is one where everybody is constantly a monkey responding to email like this, it's going to be hard for the individual who has been trained to apply their skills in that workplace context. Because they're going to have to say, hey, listen, I do email between 11 and 12. And if you send me an email, I'm not going to get to it till between 11 and 12. But if you want me more urgently, you can send me a text or we can, we can, you can walk around the corner. Or if you want something that's more urgent than that, but that's the way I need to be to be more effective for you. Anyway, that's an example of how a skill that's learned in a classroom can be rejected almost like a, a, an immune response by the organizational culture. Yeah, so, look, uh, absolutely. Anyway, that's, that, that's training. That's training transfer. That's the problem with training. Transfer. Yes, lots of um, lots of variables that apply really into um, how effective that transfer is. You know, the content, sure. the design, the timing. You know, the the. Um, yeah. The, the 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 culture, as you mentioned. Um, I want to talk quickly. Management on, support. There's management a million, I mean, there's support, a million different things, yeah, yeah. and there's a li- and there's a literature on this. I mean, there is actually a lot of academicians in the organizational behavior people that work in not necessarily in business schools, but the in- INOP, industrial and organizational psychology departments inside universities have put a lot of time over the last four decades in thinking about how do you get training to transfer to the workplace. The problem is most training and development firms ignore all that shit, and they just do what they've been doing for decades. Yes. You know, bums on seats, the happy sheet at the end of the training course, people leave the course and you say, hey, good luck. <laughs> have a nice life. Uh, so anyway, all right, yeah. you're going you're gonna to follow on. So there, there, there's ways to do a better job, and some of that's in my book. So anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And um, let's talk about resistance and why, in general, people resist change. I think you mentioned some in your book some steps around rebooting resistance. Yeah, I do. It's a dysfunctional concept in a way. Um, because as soon as you put someone in a box called a resistor to change, you're going to have a certain attitude. I want to overcome resistance. It's like the word comes to us from politics or yeah. from physics, right? And it comes from... La resistance, the terrorists who are resisting, you know, authority. 
And, you know, <laughs> you don't really want to think of your employees like that. No. Um, um, and you also don't want to think about change as something that people inevitably resist. Mm. Organizations aren't like that. I mean, sometimes, yeah. I mean, sometimes a change will be difficult for people in the organization. And you'll have to think about how to support them emotionally as they get to grips with the new world. But if you constantly view change... I mean, the view of change in the 1990s is the change manager's job was to overcome resistance. The, the people, the, the mules in the organization, every change came their way. They viewed it with suspicion uh, and mistrust mm. and mm. reacted that stupid change curve, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, yeah, depression, yeah. acceptance, yeah. right? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross yes. stuff. And, and that's the way they responded to change. And your job as a change leader was either to force it through it's one thing you can do to overcome resistance or, you know, to cajole, coerce, change the incentives, inspire them, persuade them, support them emotionally. Like there's two ways, right? There's sort of two gears that you can have naively. It's just a stupid way to think about change. Um, not everybody resists and not everybody that resists, you know, people can object for good reasons. You know, you might be wrong. <laughs> That's one reason. So how do you uh, differentiate between someone who raises a legitimate concern with somebody who's maybe having an emotional reaction? So to put all of resistance in that bucket is stupid. Uh, and it doesn't really make it any easier to deal. So what I tried to do is say people resist for different reasons. It can be ide ideological reasons. One reason people resist is because they have habits. They may like the change. They may be inspired by the change, but they got habits. My person who's been in my time management course, right? They have habits. So when they go back to the workplace and they try and do things the new way, habit is a gravity that pulls them back to the way they used to do things in the past. There's lots of sophisticated ways about thinking resistance and they just you know, the the books on change management are just so friggin' terrible <laughs> uh, yeah. because they have this massive behemoth thing, which is inevitable called resistance. And they have strategies for uh, just, I, it, it, I, you don't want to start me on it. So it's, a, you know, do people sometimes object to change? Yes. Should we call it resistance? Absolutely not. You know, that's just a word that we just need to retire from the change world. And, and, and the way I look at it, uh, Paul, is that, and I hear this a lot, actually, yeah, in, 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 in every organization that I joined, is that they, there's this uh, misconception about people who ask a lot of questions that they yeah. are resistance. And I'm thinking, yeah, pain in the well, ass. Of, yeah, those well of course, they need to ask questions because if they don't ask questions, we're in trouble. Um, that's the way people learn and engage. Yeah, yes, that's what that's yeah. what it looks like. When and they're the, asking questions. That's good. <laughs> and the other thing is that, um, uh, as you mentioned, the leaders usually outsource that responsibility to the change manager, thinking that the change manager has got a, a magic wand. Um, is actually which which takes me to my next question: Is change is managing change a leader's responsibility um, or accountability? Oh yeah. Uh, well, managing change, leading change. We're going to deal with the difference between managing change and leading change. So uh, how do I get to grips with that question of yours? Uh, so part of change leadership is being accountable, properly accountable for how the change is received by your team. Mm. You know, that would be a fairly reasonable definition of change leadership. How is this change? You're accountable 
for how this change is received by your organization. Now, is that the same as being responsible? Well, we know that accountability and responsibility are different things. Yeah. Uh, are you responsible for it? Um, no. That's why you have change agents. You know, that's why you have communication specialists. That's why you hire change management people is because although you're accountable, you can't do everything yourself. I mean, you might have an organization of 100,000 people. You you can be accountable for the way the change is welcomed in that organization. You can't be responsible for, for it all. Uh, and so people confuse those two terms uh, because responsibility, you know, this is a commonplace distinction between the two of them is, you know, that you're actually taking, you're the person taking the actions to forward the thing. And you can be accountable in some respect, but have your team be responsible. Uh, that's a commonplace distinction yes, yeah. between the two of them. I don't want to kind of yeah. go into picking that apart. There's quite a lot we could say about that. And I think the accountability piece, actually, the way I look at it, the leader is accountable about the change experience, what people receive and how they feel about the change. At the end of the day, that really feeds back into uh, whether we create a positive culture, um, adaptive culture or not. Indeed. Yeah. Um, Absolutely right. Um, There's something that I'm... um, spending a lot of time really understanding and reading lots of books and resources around behavioral science. And in particular, I think you you touched on that, which is something that I think we can use a lot of in change management, Um, things like nudges. Yeah, we don't, do we? No, we don't. Uh, And you know what's remarkable? So for people who don't know what nudges and choice architecture are, I want to refer you to Oh, I want to refer you to my book, Science of Organizational Change and, and, and Impact, because they're pretty good treatments of how those can be used in businesses. But you can make immense changes in behavior for very, very small nudges. Hmm. What's an example of that? One of the There's a framework called Mindspace, uh, and the D in Mindspace stands for defaults. And a default is, um, for example, organ donation. I know this isn't a business context, but let's, because there aren't so many great examples in business yet. Mm. Organ donation. If you have people check a box when they apply for their driver's license that says, I would like to donate my organs to people who can, you know, need a transplant, right? You know, a heart or a liver or a kidney or whatever, right? I would like to donate them. And if you have people check that box, the kind of compliance numbers, the kind of people who check it are like, you know, in the 10 to 20% region. Yeah. The rest of the people don't bother. If you change the box and you say, I would like to opt out of having my organs harvested for people who might need a transplant, right? You're like 80, 90% compliance. Yeah. So this is an interesting thing in behavioral science is like, that's a pretty tiny thing, right? And yet you have, you know, I mean, if you think about it as a change agent or a change leader in an organization, you have like a fourfold increase in compliance with a certain thing that you want to have happen behaviorally. That's a, you know, how many training courses do you have to run to do that? Uh, and so they measure these behavioral methods uh, in the very good book called Nudge by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler. Um, they, they, you could, with behavioral science, you can do experiments. And so one of the things they might do is people don't save enough. 
Nobody saves enough, right? But particularly in the West and particularly yes. in America, people don't save, right? They spend more than they earn. They, 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 it's what they earn, you know, plus whatever they can put on credit cards <laughs> rather than whatever they earn, less whatever the same. Anyway, people don't save enough and they don't save enough for the retirement, which is an incredible tax on society. You have to look after these people who don't have enough dough, right? It's a big problem. You can give people a training course, which you have some expert on financial management. And he talks to them about the benefits of savings, about Maybe he's inspirational about how your retirement can look. He can give them tools for savings. He can say, you know, here's a, here's one kind of savings tool. Here's another kind of savings tool. Here's another kind of savings tool. And that will produce some behavioral change. And, you know, the numbers work out that's something like a 7%. Change. You know, when they try to measure whatever the behavior is, they're trying to measure the savings behavior. It's kind of like a 7% change. Okay, that's not bad. Yeah. Mm. We've we changed, you know. The savings behavior by 7%. If you use nudges, <laughs> if you use nudges, uh, like, I don't know, one, one trivial example is if people sign up for to work for your organization, they have to opt out of the savings plan rather than opt in. So we talked about defaults, right? You get unbelievable changes in savings behavior. 30, 40, 50, 60, 70% changes in behavior. So, you know, now, Change management, people don't think about that shit at all. Well, you know? they just don't think about like behavioral science. Like how, they think we're still in the paradigm. Like I'm going to run a training course or I'm going to run a workshop or I'm going to coach this leader in delivering an inspiring speech. We use those kind of other kind of analog te- techniques where something that's more 21st century, like nudges, because nudge theory is only like I don't know, 15 years, 20 years old. It was pretty new. By comparison to change management, which hasn't really changed since the 1990s. Anyway, I don't have to convince you. I know that I know that you're sold. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sold, and I um, I've read those books. Um, got inspired about probably five six years ago, and I actually use it uh, in many ways. Um, um, there's somebody that called me an acronym called e- East, which is make it easy, um, make it attractive, um, uh, make Fe- it feast. Fun, easy, attractive, yeah. simple, and, right. and timely. Timely, yeah. And timely. And, yeah. and underneath all of those, the heaps of strategies. Um, I mean, talking about default, uh, think about all the subscription companies. Um, they always give you something which is, you know, the standard. And, uh, sure. you know, 70, 80% of people actually accept the standard that, yeah, the company, which is usually that the money will be going out of your bank account. You were right. Yeah, I mean, think the about the default life. also. <laughs> That's their default. Setting. Yeah, and think about the go to the restaurant and there's the main menu and there's the specials. And now the specials, they make them specials, um, and that's a kind of a nudge. Uh, that is hundred percent a nudge. Yeah, that's yeah. a choice architecture, it's, right yes, there. Yes, yes. So uh, I'm, I'm now because I've read so much about it, I try to integrate it. It, it works. And I guarantee you it works very subtle. This is not manipulation. This is trying to nudge certain behaviors. And, 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 and sometimes we change habits uh, as well uh, during do, uh, by doing that. Uh, one sure. of the things that I see uh, when I go to work, uh, people take the escalator. And the, but um, there's a university here that created this nudge, which is uh, they've got the stairs next to the escalators. Yeah. But they made them attractive and colorful and sometimes they say they put they put words in the steps to say 
by the time you finish this, you would have burned this number of calories. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's cool. nice. That's that's cute, but that's an edge. Um, but how much does it cost? It doesn't nothing, cost that much. Yes, yes, nothing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, you must have seen one of my presentations because one of my presentations has a picture of a staircase next to an escalator. And has and has the nudge. No, I haven't. But but obviously, I've read about yeah. it, and uh, yeah, yeah, and and, right, yeah. and, and I've right. seen it. Yeah. It's 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 an untapped um, science that uh, that will help a yeah. lot if we if we get. But change it. management professionals, by and large, don't read books on behavioral economics. Mm. They just don't. Uh, you know, some of them have read nudge. Not very many. Some yeah. have read the halo effect. Not very many. It's a very very good book. Yeah, I'm actually uh, uh, because because you mentioned that uh, in your book, I actually ordered it because I've, I haven't really read it yet. So um, yeah, I mean, he, I mean, I was ahead of my time in 2015 when I wrote the science of organizational change yes. to talk about cognitive biases and change management. This guy was a decade before me. <laughs> you know, yeah. like nobody else. Like yeah. he was a vo- uh, whistling in the in the in the darkness. Yes, <laughs> like yeah. back in back in the day. Yeah. So you know, hats off to Professor Rosen. My exceptional book called The Halo Effect, a short book called The Halo Effect. But you know, change, my fellow change managers, practitioners, they don't read stuff that's that they read books by Simon Sinek. No, you know? no, yeah, well, I mean, Simon yeah, is not bad, but 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 uh, yeah, he's, yeah. he's trivial, right? I mean, it's like you know, like, like in terms of making a practical difference to people's working lives, I mean, I know he feels good, but it's kind of like a, I always think it's like compared to a sugar high. Like you read some inspirational literature like that, but how, you know, are you able to lead your life in a more effective way afterwards? And I generally think no. Yeah. So I'm yeah. not a huge I'm not a huge <laughs> fan of it. I, you know, he's not the worst of them for sure. For no, sure. no. Like I, I like Simon because um, you know he, he's passionate about his work and about his ideas, and that's what. I Oh, like. I mean, you know, I wish I was as good a speaker as him. You're very good. I'd be charging I'd be charging fifty thousand dollars a talk, which you, is probably you, what, you are, probably you are. if you want Simon Sinek to speak at your event, it's probably fifty. Probably. I appreciate your time all the, you know, um, and I'm grateful you're with me. We're coming to the end of the podcast, but in summary, I really need to give me an idea about what's the future of change management. Uh, you know, I actually have like a chapter on it at the end of my I know, that's why I'm asking you. You can summarize yeah, and it in a few minutes. And, and, I, and I think I don't want to let the cat out of the bag too much in my work with Deloitte. We're going to actually think about doing some real thought leadership around this because God knows the world needs it. Yeah. Um, however, one of the things is definitely more science. Um, and there's a couple of different directions to that. So one direction is behavioral sciences, which we've talked about. Yes. Uh, one direction is using more research from industrial and organizational psychology, which we kind of talked about. Because mm-hmm. when I talk about training transfer, you know, the stuff's out there. <laughs> yeah. uh, you just have to have the discipline if you're a training provider to go and look at training transfer. Mm. Go look at the freaking research. Uh, so that's one area. And neuroscience is another. I think it's overhyped right now yeah. and under livers. But neuroscience is, you know, linking the biology of the brain uh, and what we are learning about that because it's still in its infancy to change. I, You know, it, it, again, it's overhyped now, but I think, you know, there's a future there. Um I think there's a future for artificial intelligence and change. My change management people will hate me for that. Um, uh, integrating technology with change, I think, is uh, ways. I mean, one of the things that really isn't used enough yet is change management technologies, communication technologies that allow you to have a constant dialogue with your user, with your stakeholder. Audience, yeah. 
Because what we did in the old days, in the 1990s and the 2000s, is we sent a survey. If we, if we were interested in listening to them, which we weren't always, right? Sometimes we were in broadcast mode. Emails, work, you know, whatever it was, posters on the wall, little, little, little plastic cards. These are our new values, you know, whatever it was, we were in broadcast mode. But when we were listening, we might use a survey or we might use a more high engagement event like a workshop to really hear what people's feelings were as well as just their, what we did in the survey. So those are kind of analog and they're, and they're high touch events or something like that. But now we can have that di dialogue constantly, uh, through technology such as Slack or enterprise social networks. So that's one, uh, you know, one way. Um, and I think we need to learn to think increasingly about complexity science and what we're learning about emergence and complexity. Again, you know, it's easy to say that, but there are very few good tools out there that help you to, um, understand complexity. Um, uh, I think we need to kill off, to continue to kill off the myths. This is the book that you're talking about. Yep. Uh, I think we, I think that's the very, it's the very last chapter, super short chapter. Uh, I think we need to continue to kill off the myths that are out there in the world. I think we need to kill off learning styles. I think we need to kill off Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, bless her. She was actually a pioneering woman who transformed the way we think about people who are near the end of their life. So mad props to her for doing that. And her research, highly questionable, second, first thing. And does it apply to organizations? Because that's the only thing. Is like, even if she were accurately describing the experience of people who are close to death, so why would that apply to organizational change? You have to explain that to me. Yeah. You know, you have to explain to me how a business change is like dying. You yeah, know, just it's like ahead. death. Yeah, and, and, and try. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, you know, we need to get rid of the myths uh, that are around us. Karl Popper, amazing philosopher from the 20th century, said science begins with the. He didn't use the word debunking, with the explosion of myths or something like that, mm. with the destruction of myths, uh, which I think is fairly apt. So we need to get rid of all that bullshit that's running around in the change world. You know, that's just pure garbage. That is. <laughs> Um, you know, maybe it was never true, uh, but if it was once true, like Levine's theory of unfreeze, freeze, freeze, refreeze, freeze. if it was ever true, it doesn't seem to be true right now. No. It's just not an apt metaphor. Burning platforms, just another stupid metaphor. People jumping off an oil rig, burning oil rig into the uh, into the icy water. One kind of death contrasting with another kind of death. That applies to organizational change. How? Yeah. Explain to me. How people choosing between dying by burning or dying by freezing to death? How's that a metaphor for organizational Probability change? Probability of death. Me. Yeah. But we've been talking about burning platforms for twenty five freaking years. So uh, you know, anyway. And this know, is this like, is why um, what attracted me to your speeches and your book. Uh, you're my hero because you're articulating lots of things that I, I've been thinking about, and then I cringe when people talk about because. Um, they yeah. just throw it there and they're loose statements there. And, and we're going to have to be responsible about the things that we say. Um, That's right. Paul. And, and I'm guilty. And I'm guilty. I talked about burning platform for a decade <laughs> because when I was trained in change management in the 1990s, that was orthodox. Change leaders needed to create a burning platform. And, and I taught that, <laughs> you know, mea culpa. Uh, and I think now the world has learned better. So. Yeah. That's what I think. Paul, I I appreciate your time. It's been a really pleasure talking to you. I hope I can get you back on another one because I've got your other book, which is Was that the yellow book? Yes. Oh that was the pre that was the precursor one. I didn't see yeah. that. Here right. I'll show I'll show I'll, 
I don't have my background in. Yes, that's, that's the science the of organizational change. I was very lucky. It's the first book I wrote, and it's still the bestseller of all my books. It's, it's, it's And I started already with it, and I'd love to have you back, and, and we can yeah, unpack that particular another, book. Another time and another day. And um, I want to thank you for your um, pioneering efforts to get the word out. Good for you. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, sir. Thank you so much, Paul. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode with Paul Gibbons. To know more about Paul and this podcast, check the innergameofchange.com.au website. To receive more podcasts, simply subscribe. In our next podcast, we will meet with another change management specialist who will share their thoughts and ideas on change practice, communication, and learning. Until then, stay well and stay safe.